Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. Sometimes it is just time for an epic, you know? You want to pick up something that you are going to fall into, that you're going to feel as though the story has been told for centuries again and again, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and all that. I don't know about you, but I think that many folks came to genre by those big books, specifically science fiction and fantasy. It's certainly the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Wheel of Time books, the Dune books, Dan Simmons' Hyperion, these big, chunky epics. Today, we're going to look at two different versions of an epic, epics that also say a lot about being one person standing up against a machine, the importance of being a person in thorny, difficult times. I promise, it's light stuff. Neon Yang is the author of the Hugo and Nebula-nominated Tensorit series of novellas out from Tor.com Publishing, with books and stories also published as J.Y. Yang and J.Y. Neon Yang. In previous incarnations, Yang was a molecular biologist, a science communicator, a writer for animation, games, and comic studios, and a journalist for one of Singapore's major papers. Their debut novel, The Genesis of Misery, is a spacefaring reimagining of the story of Joan of Arc mixed with Gundam pilots big mech suits. It is a delightful reimagining of a story that you think you know. And even if you think you know the Joan of Arc story well, you absolutely do not know the story of Misery Nomaki. When Neon and I got to talking, the first thing that I wanted to know about was why the Joan of Arc story? This book started off as a historical novel. I genuinely wanted to write an alternate history Joan of Arc kind of story. And it was supposed to be like, what would happen if Joan of Arc was a Chinese woman? And this was actually in response to social media blowups over something that Hollywood did. I think it was a Matt Damon movie in which he like defends China. It was oh, about yeah. like, the, the movie that <laughs> yeah. was about the, the Great Wall or something. I can't remember the title of it. It was so long ago now. There was a lot of outrage and I was just like, why is it never the other way around? What about having a Chinese person save all of Europe or something? What if you had like Joan of Arc as a Chinese woman? And I actually did so much historical research because I just didn't know that much about the history of the region from that time period. So I read up on the Hundred Years War. I went to France. I climbed all these asshole medieval staircases that nearly put the fear of God in me because I know why now like medieval peasants 
Christians were so religious because everything and anything could kill you when they lived. And then I tried writing a historical novel, got three chapters in like a year, and I told my agent, I can't do this. I can't write a historical <laughs> novel. I am so used to and tied to just making things up, just creating societies out of whole cloth that to actually write within extant societies was so difficult. So I said, I'll do something else and came up with a few other ideas, a few other projects that I worked on a bit. But my brain kept like circling back to this. And I thought to myself, I think I was uh, at that time, I was still working a day job and like zoning out. And then I had an idea. Wait, what if I took that Joan of Arc story and then set it in space and made it like, you know, like a YA novel of Joan of Arc, but she's a Gundam pilot. I was like, oh, this is a great idea. I'm going to pitch this to my agent and wrote up my entire document. And my agent, they looked at it and they were like, this is great. I love this. You should work on this. It's not YA. And I was just like, are you sure? <laughs> I started working on it. I was like, you know what? You were right. <laughs> it is not YA. And so the first version of this book was very straightforward. I just followed every beat of the Jodavark story I got from point A to point B. And then I finished the book, but I wasn't satisfied with it. I've, it felt that something was missing in that I didn't want to write a story that was just like a straight up retelling of something that already happened in history. There was no way I could actually make it any more interesting. Storytelling is never going to be as interesting as real life because real life is weirder and more complex and stranger than fiction. Anyway, so we worked on a novel and I rewrote this book from scratch at least three times. This is a book that has been reworked and reworked a lot. I started thinking about structure and storytelling. And if I have somebody telling the story of the story, who is that person and why? And then the more I worked on it, the more complex the structure became. But also an emerging narrative came out of this restructuring of the book because then the whole book became about storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell others, and where is the truth in all of that? So then the book took on this entire new theme, I guess, about truth and belief and faith and stuff like that, which was very, very relevant considering the times that we live in <laughs> and the stuff that's happening. Yeah. Speaking of the times we live in, there's something about fiction, any kind of fiction that for me has always been some imagining of other worlds. And I have so many notes from this book about wanting to watch wave dramas. And I want to know more about Alice and the first ship and all of these things that are layered throughout the novel in a way that piques my curiosity but doesn't make me mad that I don't necessarily get to find out about it, if that makes sense. One of the things that I tend to do with world building is to explain as little of it as possible because I think that humans generally throughout history, despite all the changes and the different structures of society, we have a number of common threads that run through our experiences, how we entertain ourselves, how we relate to each other. So even in worlds that are created, I think if you can draw on those common threads, you can just drop things into the narrative. And as long as it's clear what analog it is for the worlds that we're familiar with, you don't really have explain too much and you can just let people fill in the blanks and fill in whatever they think lies around these things that you've just casually mentioned in the line of dialogue or something which is my favorite way to do world building it does run the risk however of me putting a lot of stuff in that's throw away and then I forget about it because my memory is terrible 
<laughs> like later in the book or even a second book, something contradicts something that I wrote earlier. And then like when I'm reading through the book, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have editors. And copy editors. And yeah. Pick out dumb mistakes that you've made in your manuscript. <laughs> There's something I love... I mean, in general, I love reading with the critical eye of getting to talk to authors and ask them about things because it, it does make me think more than just my pleasure reading brain. But there's something about this that's relating for me to something you said earlier and something that I had been thinking about in the book, which is different versions of history. Like who gets to tell what story? How is that story relayed? And I think it's I mean, it's shot through this entire book. Oh my God, I almost just used like a marble analogy and I realized that would have been a little on the nose for this book. There's, there is something that runs through this whole book, both in the foreground and in the background. And I guess my question for you is to just hear more about that engine for you with this story of storytelling and truth and whose story gets shared by whom and which one becomes the popular narrative. I really, to your point, it's very important to be thinking about in this day and age. <laughs> I think for me, when it comes to talking about truth in historical narrative, that was one part of what went into the book. And it's something that I think about a lot because I come from Singapore, which has a very strong tradition, shall we say, of national narrative building in a kind of not very fun way. I come from a country that's basically manufactured its own national myths and stuff in a very short period of time because Singapore as an entity has existed only since the 1960s, which is when we got independence from the British. It's been a very strange sort of compressed way of nation building and the there's reasons why we are basically at the bottom of the International Press Freedom Index. We don't really have press freedom in Singapore because it's part of how the government controls the narrative. There are so many various things that it does insidiously to sort of prime people's, I don't want to say personalities, but you know, the psyche of the public to accept what people tell you and don't question it too much and worry more about your own life and it's a theme that I come back to a lot in my writing. But for this book in particular, what I was drawn to was actually cult beliefs. Cults have always fascinated me, but as I was writing this book, QAnon became a thing which was equal parts terrifying and fascinating to me because of the beliefs that they hold that defy absolute common sense and should be easily debunkable. But those beliefs are beliefs that are held deeply and sincerely by a lot of people. And it was fascinating to me why that happened and the realization that people can be led to believe almost anything if they are psychologically primed to do so. Because when people believe something, it's very difficult for people to let go of a belief that has been formed within them. And there was a lot of writing and analysis done on like why QAnon was so prevalent and how did it capture so many people in its net. It's just a bunch of crazy conspiracy theories. And, you know, it's partly because of the way people who are desperate, of people who are at their wits end, lots of things are going wrong in their life and they need to have something solid to cling on to. And the fact that a lot of it is self-generated belief, right? A bunch of random clues drop to you and then you're supposed to make a narrative out of it yourself 
yourself. And once you've got that narrative, it's very hard to let go of it, no matter how many people try to tell you that, no, the narrative you created is wrong. Psychologically, we tend to reject these voices of reason because we're so attached to beliefs that we have created for ourselves. So this is something that I wanted to explore in the Genesis of Misery, because obviously there are some like really unbelievable things that happen in the book and people believe unbelievable things in the book. And I wanted to explore how they can make it convincing to themselves. I was often thinking of the word corruption as I was reading the corruption of government, corruption of the self, corruption of others. I feel like it's not too much of a spoiler to say that Misery has this passenger, this hallucination, question mark, a vision called ruin. And I was thinking so much, particularly in the first half of the book, where Misery is struggling to figure out what they believe, whether they can trust themselves and their own mind, which then that ripples out to, can we trust the government, the military, the church, each other? That uncertainty is shot through the whole book. And it does grapple with that same thing of like, how is it that people believe in QAnon? Oh, it's because they just... They feel as though there's something that they can't trust in the world, and this gives them something to hang on to. Absolutely. In real life, you can see that the seeds of QAnon, the why it's so effective at taking root is because late-stage capitalism makes all of us miserable, and it's something that, in part, they're right. There's like a conspiracy to oppress (laughs) all of us. It's just not the one that they think it is. It's just something around us, and it's a system that we can't escape because it is so inexorable. And And I think what I did in the Genesis of Misery is also similar in that Misery is a person who is relatively powerless, right? They are someone who grew up poor in a very remote area of the empire, and the mother is mentally ill. And so socially, economically, politically, they are disadvantaged. And then within that, in their own family unit, you have a brother who is strict to the point of being abusive. And so they have multiple reasons to distrust what's around them, but also distrust what's in themselves. So I think there are someone who is very right to suggestion, but also someone who has been resisted suggestion their entire life because they want to hold on to themselves because they're afraid of losing themselves. This tension was really fun to play with and thread throughout the book and pull and push in ways to serve the narrative and stuff like that. I can't help, maybe because I've been an atheist all my life and suspicious of organized religion, but there's something about suggestion and questions of fate, whether or not misery is fated to do what she does, whether she has been prophesied or foretold in some way. And it makes me think about when an author says that they were surprised by something that a character did, for example, because in some ways the author is God setting out the sort of determinism for everything. And yet so often there is this play. And I was wondering how fate was interacting with you in the writing of the novel. Oh, that's interesting. I think this kind of ties into something. Well, you mentioned that, you know, basically I, as an author, I'm basically playing God with all these characters that I'm creating who may sometimes do unexpected things, but ultimately like I'm the person in charge. It's interesting you say that because Misery themselves was a character who changed a lot during the different iterations of the book because they're the first version. Misery had a different name. Their name was Honey and they were like an innocent cinnamon roll baby. And with each rewrite of the book, they just got worse and worse as a person. And it wasn't something that I planned to begin with, but it was something that happened because it suited the story I wanted to tell and it made the story more interesting. So in a sense, you could say that Misery was a victim of 
fate in that they became who they were because they needed to fit in the story that I was telling. Like they changed because I had a vision of a story in mind, and then I realized that this character wasn't quite doing what I wanted them to do. So I made the character worse, <laughs> which is also interesting because as I have been planning for book two, in book two there is a different protagonist, and my original idea for the protagonist I realized also would not work for book two in like how I envisioning book two as it relates to book one because the two stories are kind of detached from each other but not really because the way the genesis of misery ends it ends at a point where the story could go in a number of directions that are not really constrained by what happens in the text of the book itself. What happens in book two is quite separate from what happens in book one. So I had ideas for what I wanted the protagonist of second book to be and how they relate to misery. And I realized as I was developing this character that actually I think they need to be a completely different person. The personality needs to be different and their motivations and their background needs to be different. So I changed that. So I think fate, in a sense, works within the confines of a book because it's not real life, right? It is a story, it's a contained universe that is trying to say something. And so therefore, everything you put in the book is in there for a reason. So as a character, you're in the book for a reason. Doesn't that sound fate to you, right? <laughs> Speaking of constructing this book, what was it like going from writing shorter work to taking on not only a big chunky novel, but a big chunky novel with the promise of more to come? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> At the start of it, I really had no idea what I was doing. I never written a whole novel before, so pacing was all off. I was just putting things in the book just because it was really messy. And that's why I just threw the whole thing out. Now I think I've read two or three books, even though they're all like different iterations of the same story. I think I have a better grasp on what it is that goes into a novel and how I can best work on that. And... It's interesting because when I first conceived of the trilogy, this book actually constituted the plot of what I thought would be book one and book two. So by the time I got to the end of the Genesis of Mystery, I had a setup for like more books, but I didn't actually know what they would be like. I, I didn't quite have a plan of where it was going to go there. There were many places I could have taken the rest of the trilogy and like, starting work on book two. But it was very interesting to work on something that could be just longer and you have space to explore a lot of different things that you wouldn't in a shorter work. Although I think like the novella format is very interesting because it's like an artificial category where you have really long short fiction and really short long fiction that's locked together. And it's a great experimental space because like the other two novellas that I wrote were entirely experimental. I was like, I want to write a novella that is epistolary. I want it to be like a monologue. I wrote both of those. It was tough and I'm never doing that again, but it was at least I did it once. I tried. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really like that idea of the novella as a very cool if we're gonna play by these strange made-up rules why not use it as a space to do wild exciting yeah. things that's a really cool way to think about it i was yeah. gonna ask you how you came to that space because it is it's a very particular space and you use it so well 
I am the kind of terrible writer who likes to mess around with story structures and having the shape of the story itself also be part of the story. I wrote a lot of like weird short fiction. And so I think a huge part of the reason I was so dissatisfied with the first iteration of this book, this novel, was that I felt that it was just so normal. It just went from point A to point B to point C to the end of the book. And I was just like, surely I can do more than that. I don't want to just tell a story. I want to be telling a story with purpose and deliberation. It's not just like stuff happened, but it's stuff happened, but I will tell it in a very particular sort of way that enhances the value of the stuff that happened. That makes you think more about it, which is, I think like it's kind of a thing that I do a lot. And I very happy with the structure of Genesis of History that resonates with the themes of the novel. But one of the strange side effects of having now written long-form work is that it's very difficult to return to short-form work because I've done this huge book and everything and I've done stuff that's working with more complex structures and not saying things directly. If I want to say something, I say it in a very sideways sort of way. And then I come back to short fiction and I was just like, so much of the short fiction I used to write was very on the nose because it's short. I just say the thing that I want to say and then I was just like, maybe I never really knew how to write short fiction because now I just get stuck because I'm like, huh, <laughs> I just can't tell a story from A to B anymore. And it's so much harder to do interesting things in short fiction. But at the same time, also so much easier because it's short, right? You don't have to commit to anything you do for more than 5,000 words. So you can do a lot with a short story. Just feel like I, when I was writing short fiction, I just never utilized the potential of the form. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I did. But now that I've come out of writing other longer forms, I'm just like, actually, I don't think I knew what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's strange. Completely unexpected side effect. I did not realize. I don't know if I will go back to writing short fiction regularly. Partly because I have to write all these novels and that's what's paying my bills. So I have to do them. And, you know, they take a lot of space. But I would still love to write a short story every now and then. Tamsin Mir is the best-selling author of the Locked Tomb series, which has won the Locust and Crawford Awards and been nominated for the Hugo, the Nebula, the Shirley Jackson Award, the World Fantasy Award, the Dragon Award, the U.G. Foster Memorial Award. She's a Kiwi who has spent most of her life in New Zealand, but currently lives and works in Oxford in the United Kingdom. If you don't know about the Locked Tomb series, I'm not sure that I can do it justice in the few seconds before I actually get around to talking to Tamsin. It is, as the logline on the first book, Gideon the Ninth, said, about lesbian necromancers in a haunted house in space. But it is also about so much more than that. It is a series about identity, about justice, about fighting big space monsters and killing planets, but also just trying to figure out who you are and how to survive in a world, in a universe that absolutely wants to destroy you. It's also a series that started as a trilogy and has now turned into four books. Nona the Ninth, the third book out most recently, is the most surprising thing to happen so far in the Locked Tomb series. The book itself existing, the things that happen in the book, 
Nothing from Gideon or Harrow the Ninth could at all prepare you for exactly how strange and wonderful Nona the Ninth is going to be. I found it to be a delightful surprise, and I wanted to know how Tamsin felt about the appearance of this unexpected third book. I mean, first off, delightful surprise is such a great way of phrasing it, because I think that non-delightful surprise was the way that everybody who was working on the book couched it, you know? <laughs> Nona was always meant to be there in the structure of the final book, in the trilogy that was. So it's a case where, you know, the character herself and the story is not a surprise. That did not shock me. I think that I am just one of many authors out there who is now a little bit surprised as to how long the story became which is you know it's the oldest trick in the book you think okay this is my act one you start writing your act one the editor asks how the book is going and you're like yeah you know i'm sorry i'm still in the woods on act one don't know when this book's going to be finished he's just like well you know out of curiosity how long is act one you're like bumping up on 150k (laughs) yeah i wish that he had made that sound i think the color drained from his face it took a long time to convince me that it was maybe not the best thing to have an act one of four that was going to be 150k because you know you can publish a book that looks like that only it gets impossible to read it'll kill your foot or a small animal if you drop it there and the worst part is everybody who's already got the books is going to kick your ass because it looks so different on the bookshelf people who buy physical books they really care about that and you know I, i get that but at the same time i really held on for the longest time and then i had to admit in the end that this was one book of four rather than one really last big third entry when you say that there's almost a little bit of not disappointment in your voice but how much did it throw off your vibe to be like oh man now it's a whole nother book Oh, no, no, that's a lot of disappointment in my vibe. I was absolutely miserable. I was like, oh, this ruins everything. All of my perfectly laid plans. Because for me, I am a planner. My books behave. They do what I tell them. I'm not one of these authors who are like, wow, I was so surprised by the actions of my characters. They just did things. It was so great and wonderful. I hate that. I'm incredibly anal about what my characters are doing. And because I think the series has so many inflections from mystery books, from detective books, you know, I see set up what I'd hoped was a pretty well-oiled Rube Goldberg device. And when you have anything that goes wrong in the device, you're just like, oh shit, is this just going to knock down all the rest of my cutlery? Like, you don't want any surprises when you are writing a mystery because you're just like, oh, this is going to absolutely unravel strings later. Oh, the vibes are still rancid to me. I have the book as a physical object and I'm not over it. It sucked. I mean, looking back, you know, I just kind of want to kick my own ass to be frank because the idea that the story I had could have fit into an act one. I just think I was kind of kidding myself. It's not a case where I've been surprised by plots and I've been really lucky throughout the series that I have not been surprised by plots. There have been a couple of discrepancies, a couple of little things, but I haven't sat there being like, wow, where the heck did that come out of? It came out of nowhere. I think it was just, you know, it's the opposite of your eyes are bigger than your stomach. I was like, you know, this is bite size, this is digestible. And then, you know, of course, 150k later, your editor's crying and you're like, well, (laughs) this is just uh, how I live my life now. And I guess because Gideon and Hera were both quite chunky books. So I was like, it's fine. I could just give myself time to do this. But I gave myself too much time. And I don't regret it because there is no other way that Nona could have been. It is a natural thing. And I think the book would have suffered from me trying to squoosh it, not a word, into an act one. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read Electo yet, obviously. But I had the feeling when I got to the end of Nona, well, like, of course it had to be this way. I mean, that's sort of the joy of being the reader, I guess, where I understand that it must have been surprising for you, but I can't 
can't imagine what this would have looked like squooshed down to a single act. But I empathize with your editor. You know? uh, he's a good guy. He needs more empathy. But I mean, I love hearing <laughs> you say that. And I hope that the readers will read and be like, yeah, there is no other way this could have been because it is tight. There is no more room to do anything in it. And I like to think that, yeah, there is no other way it could have been now that I've been convinced that there's no other way it could have been. Right. But the last thing you want to have happen is a reader be like, oh man, you know, should have cut this down to 20 pages. Because I mean, you can't cut it down to 20 pages. They still don't want to hear you say that. Another thing that I find so fascinating and remarkable and distinct, you mentioned control. And these books do feel so tightly controlled, specifically in their points of view. And I want to talk to you about so many facets of point of view. But I think the one that is universal through all three books, even as the points of view radically shift, is allowing things to happen off screen, as it were, and keeping the focus on what the point of view character is currently experiencing in a way that, you know, in Harrow, it's like, who is even talking to me right now? Who is narrating this book? In Gideon, we're learning about the world. In Nona, there are scenes where she blacks out while stuff happens. And I love that you committed to, yep, she was blacked out. And so maybe you're going to get a little bit of background about what happened during that time from an overheard conversation in the other room. I love that so much. And I want to know about writing like that. You know, I want to say immediately it's just me being a jerk. But the truth is, it's a very, you know, it feels quite natural for me. And when I think about it, quite often I'm taking my cue from Greek drama, you know, which sounds pretentious. Yeah, absolutely. I'm taking my cue from Greek drama. But I've always been really inspired by the limitations of Greek tragedy, especially. Something massive will happen off stage, And obviously part of that is the limitations of Greek theater. We can't really depict a gigantic bull coming out of the ocean to completely waste to politics, for example you know we, <laughs> yeah. we don't have the budget today but at the same time you know the greek tragedians were incredibly creative people we do see some incredible acts happen on stage so moreover it is a choice often that they were making about who gets to see the action and who we're with when the action is explained you know the chorus comes in they explain to us the audience and to whichever characters they're talking to this just happened so we're actually Actually, with them, especially at times of huge grief, when you discover it for the first time, what tragedy feels like when it is being told you. And you know, Shakespeare does this too. Thinking about Macbeth, okay, sometimes we see on screen, on screen, when Macduff's family's killed. But Lady Macbeth dies off screen. So it's the decision that Shakespeare made that, okay, Lady Macbeth has completely iced herself, but we want to have that moment of seeing that with Macbeth. You know, she should have died hereafter. That's the moment for the tragedy that he picked. So I think that actually the blackout idea, the idea that things are happening off screen, is actually a really cool one to play with. Well, I love it. Yeah. Wow. You're absolutely right. Macbeth is my favorite Shakespeare play. I've Good done it several times. Thank you very much. And you're absolutely right. The power of learning that she has died through watching him learn that yeah. is so much more powerful than it would be if she had some 
you know, protracted death scene. Yeah, if we'd seen that afterwards, if we had seen her die, then gone to Macbeth's reaction, you know, there's a reason that that moment is so powerful. And in a way, it makes her death more passive. We're seeing it through him. But that's a really interesting choice. And I think that it's one thing that I'm about to sound 90 years old, but like TV has made us want to take in events, want to be more present in them. And that's why I think Greek tragedy can be so weird for a modern audience being like, wait, that all just happened off screen and you're about to do a long monologue about it. Okay. It does feel unusual in a modern context to not be given everything. And there are plenty of stories that don't give you everything. But even so many of the ones that do... I'm not going to use any specific examples because I don't want to belittle anybody, but there are moments of cop-out, and I like that you don't. One of my favorite ways to describe these books is that they are uncompromising. This is such a fully realized vision of a world. You set up these boundaries and you stuck to them. And I feel like it's strange to say this, but it feels like that's rare today. I mean, that's a cool thing to say. I mean, uncompromising can both be the best word and the worst word. Because uncompromising to me is like, yes, I stuck to my guns, but also it's the kind of blurb you see on a book that's like gritty, uncompromising. And you're like, well, I'm not going to read it this year. You know, when you're writing about storytelling, I think you naturally become really interested in who is telling the story. And so weirdly enough, writing these books is a huge act of compromise because I'm not using the universal voice. I'm using one person's bias. And it's really fun to switch point of view and be like, oh, this story to you is an entirely different story and with some narrators and they're the most fun to play with you're just lying you're just absolutely spouting bs the audience knows that by now you know your nose has grown six feet and that's really fun have you ever read lawrence durrell's alexandria quartet absolutely lawrence durrell is great the end of justine where What's-His-Name shows up and is like, that's not how the story went. It was only honestly upon my reread coming back to Gideon after having read Harrow. And the first time I read Harrow, I was definitely like, what the fuck? (laughs) And I came back to Gideon and I started to see that I couldn't trust it as much as I did before. And not only was I distrusting things in a different way, but there was something about the shifting points of view and the way that that can reveal story. I mean, it just, it made me think of that Durrell moment of something as simple as you read a book and you're like well obviously that was the story and then someone just says not quite I mean, I think in some ways reading the Durrell Quartet is like having a bad relationship. And you know, <laughs> yeah. the way we talk about it, I'm like, well, the locked tomb books are also kind of like having a really terrible relationship. But it's that moment when it flips. The master of it in my mind is Nabokov. Lolita especially is just a book that is trying to sell you a pup. You know, you're spending the whole thing with a used car salesman and it has <laughs> been so good that all of the discourse about Lolita has been split for like the past umpty-ump years because we managed to be betrayed even as the reader and that is magnificent i love that moment of as you say it's the flipping it's the you believe this oh that was cute yeah and there's something this feeling of as you're reading harrow you're sort of along with harrow fighting to understand which is distinct from when you're reading gideon and you're hanging out with gideon and gideon's just kind of like 
Yep, just here we are. (laughs) And then Nona, who is a heretofore unknown character, an unexpected character who also is truly learning about the world as she's experiencing it. Did you know that these points of view and their constraints were always going to be the points of view? Or as you were sort of crafting like the larger arc, did you then say at this point, this thing has happened. And so what if we were in this person's head? For that chunk. I know this sounds incredibly dorky, but yes, I always plan for that because there's a specific like mathematical order of priority in these books over who gets to be the narrator. And I always knew I wanted to play with what that order of priority was. There is one person who is the OG. Their voice will always come through if they are present enough to be there. And I think that if you've read Harrow, you'll start to understand, oh, okay, I know what that order might be. And with no you know we are seeing another point of view in another aspect of the priority and that's frustrating you know it's frustrating to the reader it's difficult to write because by that point I knew all of the story and I knew the things that were going on I knew what the references meant and then you have Nona who finds the familiar the unfamiliar you know her story is just a and Nona is different and confusing all over again after Harrow but at least I've softened people up you know I think that in some terms <laughs> Harrow was meant to weed out the weak. I keep getting stuck on that mathematical hierarchy of point of view. And I just like... Sounds way cooler than it is. Oh my God. But like my brain lit up because I was like, (laughs) oh... I see that. I like, I get it in the sense of a math problem. And it's so, it's certainly rare in my life that I'm like, yes, I want to think about math. I love hearing somebody be like, yeah, that lit up my brain rather than I've closed the book. I'm walking away. (laughs) So there are these, let's call them interstitial moments in Nona where we get a bunch of history. We get the backstory and obviously whether or not it is entirely trustworthy continues to be a great theme of the books. But I would love to know about I hesitate to use the word world building, putting together the sets, I guess, that then allowed you to put these characters in and let them do their thing. So the magic, the necromancy, the connections to our present. How were you churning all of those together to create this world of these books? I think this is the first time I've ever heard anybody refer to world building as building the sets and I actually really like it because I have such mixed feelings about world building qua world building you know world building as she is understood because I think that world building has become this huge industry especially I think more than any other in the SFF genre. If you want to write an SFF book okay first things first write a hundred page bible of you know the numismatics of the back culture frankly a lot of stuff that's never going to make it on the page whereas if you look at reading as theater you don't make sets for stuff you're not going to see on the stage Mm -hmm. you only ever make the sets for the important parts of the storytelling and i think that world building is just storytelling which is why we kind of get ourselves into the weeds of yes but what is the music like of my people and you know that's cool when you're 12 and uh, you know i love (laughs) doing it too but I also sometimes think it's kind of a way to not have to write your book because writing books is very scary and writing down these are the festivals my people do is cool and it can be useful but boy is it not putting words on the page that the reader's gonna read and and again that's why I find the idea of sets really interesting because the way that I've kind of thought about these books is where we're going to be what the reader gets to see what am I gonna have to build because if you think about it as a story as a narrative 
which, which I guess is all history is, then it gets a heck of a lot easier because all you've got is what you need. You know, that sounds incoherent, but you talk about this interstitial moments about what happened. And that was one of the first things I knew about the books. What happened? What was the story that showed up before? And obviously that was really helpful and I knew I needed that to be in there. And it has been in the books in a huge way. And it's so much fun to kind of, okay, we've seen the set in Shadow, now we are here. I finally let you go to this planet. The more that I think about, the more it sounds like game building, frankly. And I mean, it is world building and I think there's a lot of confusion over what world building is. You, know, you see people be like, I like the world building of this book and other people say about the same book, world building was crap. So I think we're coming towards a question of what do you mean when you say that? Is it about being present in the world? Because that's all I want people to be. I want people to feel as though the story is real, as though this could have happened and that they are seeing it as it should be seen. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about the references that get seeded through to pop culture and meme. And I find myself talking with friends about the ways in which culture loses its context sometimes. And there are these lines or these things that we remember. But like, why is that there? When you sort of look back at where it came from. We were talking about the Anne Washburn play, Mr. Burns, which happens to be a great exploration of this culture blurring. The play is a post-apocalyptic three times over oral retelling of the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons. And there are these moments where you start to see how the story shifts, how other pieces of pop culture start to find their way into a story where they weren't otherwise. And it makes you realize like, oh, right, everybody does that. Shakespeare was doing that. And I found myself thinking about all of this in the context of your books and the references. I mean, a specific one to just pick one out of the ether, Jail for Mother, I think was the one that I had to put the book down and walk away because I was laughing so hard <laughs> see, that's, that's a good reaction I like that you were laughing not you know wondering where I lived wondering what my schedule was <laughs> wondering if you could drive into me it's so interesting seeing what we do with language and also kind of what the rules are again in SFF you can absolutely make yourself wealthy by getting a dime every time you wander over somebody talking on the internet about, well, a fantasy is terrible because I get so cross every time I see somebody saying, ah, fire the arrows, because it would have been loose the arrows, fire is what we do with... And at the same time, okay, yes, that's absolutely perfectly factually true. But anachronism is baked into everything we read. And I think that all historical writing and SFF writing is kind of a balancing act of how many people are you pissing off and hopefully if you're only pissing off like 10% of the experts then most people will be like wow this book is so well researched and I walk a tightrope of the fact that you know I'm a Kiwi our humor is very much not letting anything be serious not letting anything sit and when I'm putting a cruddy meme reference in that makes you walk away part of me is being like this ain't the Hobbit mate <laughs> you know seriousness works so well with some books and I love them for it I wouldn't have wanted to read Dune if Dune wasn't taking itself seriously but at the same time I sometimes think that science fiction and fantasy needs more humor not less then again the problem is at the same time I'm using all these meme references to do something specific so you know I've just got a poison meal on my hands because <laughs> I'm doing this for fun but also I want you to pay attention well in these interstitial moments as you're sort of saying like hey those things that you were picking up on many of them were right I appreciated them immensely because they deepened my understanding and prompted new questions of like oh so that's been confirmed but now I'm wondering about these other things I really liked that information was given particularly because it 
didn't feel like a chore or it didn't feel begrudging. So often towards the end of a series, particularly in fantasy or like the back third of a Marvel movie, you can feel that thing, right? Of somebody sort of telling the author, okay, you have to give us all this information. And you can feel the author being like, okay, yeah, right, right, right. And that was not at all what these moments in Nona felt like. I love that you had that reaction first off. I can die happy now. Just as long as one person felt that, it's fine. I did my job. I think that we get that in mystery as well, a genre that has absolutely infiltrated every aspect of the locked tomb books. You say you've got that little voice telling the author, like, you better get all this done. And I think it's even worse at the end of a mystery. It's like, oh, okay, the murder happened like this. (laughs) But also, like, you don't have to explain everything, you know, I really admire the works of Wilkie Collins. He is such a lawyer about everything, and he has to explain everything in the end right down to the last second, to the point where, you know, when somebody wrote in later being like, actually, Wilkie, you got the dates wrong, he edited. He went out, ripped that part out, and made them just redo the book. And I'm like, okay, slow your roll. And then you have the mystery authors who are a little bit better at leaving in the question, of answering enough so that you think you know. And in some ways, the mystery writers doing this best actually come from the Japanese tradition, both in terms of Japanese detective novels and also in, you know, I'm afraid I'm a terrible... Is simp the word? You know, it's <laughs> children today. Is simp the word? Am I simping? I have um, the same question. You know, I've got a lot of nieces and nephews, but the problem is they're not quite at the vocab I want yet, so I'm just introducing <laughs> stuff to them when I shouldn't. It's like, seven-year-old, tell me of simping. Like what? <laughs> Whether or not I simp, people will be able to tell me. I love visual novels. I have absorbed them all. You know, again, coming from the Japanese tradition, mystery visual novels are doing this the best. Like, I kind of know enough about the mystery, but there's a wriggle room. Yeah, I love Tana French. And at the end of yep. In the Woods... I have friends who won't read another one of her books because they got so mad. They felt as though a contract had been broken. That's a cool thing. That's interesting. Right? And and to me, I was like, what fucking contract? The book left you asking questions and they were like, well, but when I go to the genre, I want my questions answered. And I thought that was so fascinating. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because obviously the contract exists in thrillers and, you know, even more so in mystery when Mm -hmm. something will happen at the end that you understand understand we'll find out the mystery obviously it happens in romance although i think that romance is busy having an upheaval over what is the contracted romance is it actually a happily ever after and i think it's really interesting what it says about maybe what we're coming to genre for you mentioned romance i wanted to ask you about love in these books These books are love stories in a way. And, you know, what are we coming to genre for? What do we expect out of certain genres? There are elements of romance in these books, but there are also, there's elements of everything in these books. And I I just wanted to hear you, I don't know, talk a little bit about, about writing love and romance that isn't necessarily sexual or even romantic, but like these, these relationships and carrying them through these very complicated upheavals. I mean, I love the idea that my books are a kind of everything burrito, but you are absolutely right. And it's very gratifying to hear because love is such a central tenet of these books. And there are so many hideous different fractals of love. And one of the really fascinating things about writing Nona to me was 
you know, a lot of people have used this phrase found family, this idea of taking people to you, gathering people around you who are not joined to you by blood, but they come to you through love. They come to you through something else. Now, at its worst, found family is absolutely saccharine and makes me want to stick my finger down my throat because <laughs> it's just a huge yuck. But at the same time, you know, I'm obsessively drawn to it. I think that we can argue in some ways it's numinously queer. It is a very part of queer identity, who your family is, who your community is. This book is about two found families. We've got this interstitial part where we have a man, I think that's not spoiler territory, <laughs> who is gathering people to him in the manner of Jesus and his disciples. And then we have a girl who is gathering people to her. Not really a girl. She's 19, but she's also really weird. And Nona as a book is meant to be like, yes, this is the beauty of that love. But also it's a kind of repudiation by the end because in both cases, the found family kind of didn't work. It's wonderful writing about messed up love, problematic love, extremely cancelable love. <laughs> love is so messy and its edges are not well defined. And I think that's something that really messes people up. We want defined love. And I know that when people talk about the Lock Tomb books, you know, they're like, okay, how did Gideon and the Harrow actually feel about each other? Because again, it has been such a messy topic. Some people have mistaken the relationship for siblingy or sisterly. It's a sibling relationship. Which I've got three siblings. It's not a sibling relationship. <laughs> and yet, you know, there is something weirdly familial and obscene and internested about it. You know, it's very codependent. So I can't completely laugh at the people who say that. And then I wanted to explore that again with these sort of two found families that you're reading about simultaneously. Both of them are intensely screwed up and there should be something beautiful in it, but there should also be something like, whoa, okay, this was not meant to happen and people doing the best with what they've got at the time and it's still being beautiful and it's still being yuck. We have not had a lot of opportunity to be like who's got dinner on and who has cleaned out the sink. So it is fun to have these weird little domestic moments. I mean, some of my favorite moments in the Iliad when we're kind of sitting down in other people's tents and there's a long description of like, we're about to make this weird kind of cheese drink and then we get back out to the fight. I think that Nona is in some ways my cheese drink. I really like that particular analogy because I felt closer to the fight in a way because of sort of the, the on the groundness. There's something tightly contained about where we see Gideon, where we see Harrow, their relationship to the Emperor. It's all very much up at the top as it were. And there's so much like tangible on the ground stuff. I wanted to know a little bit more about that choice to bring things down among the people sounds wrong, but to come down to this very tangible, so much more relatable, I guess, almost, in a way where Gideon and Harrow, it's like, I want to relate to that. I want to be <laughs> fucking off in a haunted house in space. And instead, it's a little bit of like, do I need to wear a mask when I go outside today? I think that it is inarguable that Nona is very flavored with the pandemic. You know, okay, we've got this worldwide pandemic going on. We still got to figure out who's cooking the dinner real life goes on in its weird fractured broken way but I did very much want that kind of slap through the face after Harrow especially questions of immortality and godhood questions of what does it look like if you have unyielding immortal death power and then you go straight to okay is it cereal for breakfast I feel like both of those things in tandem make the other one brighter you see this in horror as well it's why I think that horror and comedy are such peanut butter and chocolate these things taste better together and the other flavor is the brighter for the presence of its partner so when you go from the epic the gigantic question godhood death 
blood, immortality. And then we're going to make you think about cereal now. And I love that way of reading. I love that turning on a dime. I know that some people don't. And I know that that comes back to the question of what do we come to genre for? We don't come to a plate of oatmeal so that the texture is different. Every spoonful, <laughs> that's just right. a nightmare making myself feel ill just thinking about it but at the same time I think that we do SFF a disservice when we look at it as a kind of bland paste meal of every spoonful is going to be exactly the same There was something Tamsin said in our conversation about more human, not less. I think that that has become a huge theme of everything that I look for in life, in politics, in my fiction, in everything. I want more human, not less. These books and the characters who run through them are grappling with what it means to be human, how to survive as a human in the face of monolithic entities dead set against your humanity, whether those are corporations, undying necromantic hordes, religious cults, or institutions, however you want to look at any of them. We all know what it is like to be one small person wondering what they can do in the face of immense universal strife. So I thought it would be interesting to talk to somebody who, in the face of immense universal strife, has been working tirelessly and joyfully to uplift their community. Justice McRae was an organizer for Beacon for Black Lives in the town of Beacon, New York, which is a little town in the Hudson Valley, not too far from where I live, where I have a bunch of friends who live. And earlier this year, Justice decided to go from being an activist to running for city council. Even better, they got elected. And I wanted to know why they made that jump and how they feel that it has changed the work that they do. The shift from community organizer to becoming I don't even like to call myself a politician, but that is the role. It's not an easy decision. And there were a lot of no's before there was a yes. Um, going to city council meetings every week, advocating for change at a certain point, you realize that you might need to be on the other side of the table. And as somebody that I didn't really grow up involved in politics and then learning this world as an adult and not really having faith in it from the jump. But I do believe that things can change on a local level. And that happens when we do have people in these seats that are actually advocating for their neighbors and for their community and share the lived experiences of those who are most marginalized. And as much as I didn't want to actually be in this role, I, I think having somebody that understands what it's like to live a marginalized experience, to be Black, not just in America, but in Beacon, and to be queer, and to be poor, and to exist without a car, and just like all of these lived experiences that I have, big and small, I think contribute to a larger understanding of and empathy toward what people need. If I'm in a greater position to help provide that to people, I, I want to be in it, or at least I wanted to be in it, hence here I am. I have no political ambitions, which I think helps. I did not take this seat on the local level to then step up later and like run for Congress or president or anything in between. That's never been a goal of mine. I thought that this was this opportunity to bring power back to the people. And at the end of the day, the role of a city council person, or I guess really any politician, is one, create laws that ultimately help serve people, and then to redistribute resources to make sure that people have what they need. 
part of what grounds me is that beacon is small enough. Every time I leave my house, I see people that I know and I'm engaging in conversations with people I know or people that know me and we're just talking about what's going on. I wouldn't have put myself in this position if I didn't have hope. My community wouldn't have put me in this position if we didn't share hope. But I fervently believe in a future that we can build. I don't necessarily have hope in the systems and structures that we are working within, but I do have hope that we can build something better. And that hope is built upon the fact that we are building something better. I ran on this platform of reimagining community safety or reimagining safety and like what that means and like talking to people, holding forums, getting an understanding and idea of what safety means to people. Safety is community. Safety is knowing your neighbors. The feeling of safety exists when you have that grounding, when you have community to hold you. I think it's as simple as showing up as much as you can in a way that's also nourishing to yourself. You know, it's really just as simple as showing up for each other. And that takes a million and one different forms, but it's not hard to be kind. And it starts with knowing each other. That makes it so much easier. It can be hard sometimes, even in the year 2022, to think that you and I are in community with one another. We are neighbors of a sort. Probably not literally, although if you are my neighbor and you haven't told me that you listen to the podcast, why? More likely than not, you and I might never meet, but we are connected. And isn't that one of the great lessons of fiction? Even more than fiction, just of reading. The community of readers was probably the first community that I ever realized truly I was a part of. So whether you are out there killing time in your big space marble mech suit that you control with your mind, or sitting, waiting to flip a planet from living to dead with your thanergic energy, or just listening to a podcast to or from your way to work, or wherever you might be. I am glad to be in community with you. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Daniel Anchoni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.